to the third episode of No Such Thing as a Prayer Record Refolio, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club to celebrate the 75th episode of the Alfa Romeo Driver Podcast. We're coming to you from four undisclosed locations around the UK, or technically England. I'm Guy Swarbrick, and I'm sitting here with Kirsty Hodson, John Griffiths, and Nick Wright. And we've gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the world of Alfa Romeo. And in no particular order, here we go, starting with John's fact. Okay, my fact this week is that the Alpha GT, introduced 20 years ago, was only ever supposed to be a stopgap model until the Brera arrived. But it ended up being sold for eight years and actually outlived the Brera by a month or two. And it outsold the Brera four to one. Obviously, I'm a big fan. The GT had a difficult birth. The car, which was allegedly going to be called the Sprint after the Giulietta, Giulia Alpha Sud Coupes, was conceived during yet another period of confusion at Alpha. The 939 series, 159, Brera and Spider, were already on the drawing board. The GT was based on the 156 Sport Wagon platform, but had 147 doors with the frames removed, wings and bonnet. All good money-saving stuff. But then it had unique headlamps, tailgate, roof and rear wings. It works, though. It's got a fabulous line to its coupe glass house, as you call it, and it's practical, too. You can you can just about get five adults in it. Um, four's a, a real squeeze in a Brera. It's really a two plus two or two plus two with the legs chopped off and no heads. <laughs> and the GT's got a decent-sized boot, too. It was a real success for Alpha, building on the 156's sales, and typically for the time, it was a 1.9 diesel that, that provided that volume. But everyone agrees the 3.2 V6 Busso was the one to have. Sadly, the Busso was killed off in 2007, uh, allegedly because of the emissions regs, and which was a huge tragedy. And those emissions, despite the fact it had four catalytic converters. But when Alpha finally brought out a, a Q2 model that was the limited slip differential, it was only in the 1.9 diesel. But that proved a really good drive. It, it had the most torque of the remaining variants, so it benefited most in controlling all of that. And they prompted many a V6 owner to fit limited slip diffs that really helps to calm them down. I had the LSD fitted to mine, and it does lessen the car's urge to hurl you into a field when accelerating out of a bend. The standard diffs do have a tendency to explode too. Yes, that sorry, they all do that, madam. <laughs> Other other intriguing features on them. We think they're all fitted with a rattly tailgate from the factory. It's quite a big thing, that rear, rear boot lid. And, and the car hasn't got the greatest structural rigidity, means it doesn't always fit quite as well as it might. I spent many a happy Sunday afternoon taking all the trim off and fitting little wedges to make it shut up. But really, the solutions to turn up the stereo and quite a lot have got the thumping bow setup that was pretty excellent. Well, that's a first. Isn't Bose hi-fi for people who don't really like music? Mind you, that exaggerated thumping bass probably did help with the rattle. Some of the parts sharing went in the other direction too. It has a 147 dash and steering wheel, but they gave it a unique seat so they're heavily bolstered and quite superb. They then ended up in the excellent 147 Ducati Course Edition from around 2008. And, like the 156 on the 147, the wishbone brushes are treated as a consumable item. Three years is really good going. Chinese copies are available for a few quid less and last about three months. There are some people who claim that it was the GT that killed Bertone, sort of. Bertone designed the GT and were counting on building it for Alpha at their factory in the tiny commune of Gugliasco, west of Turin, where rivals Pininfarina had an R&D facility in a wind tunnel. They also designed a four-seat convertible version, which was killed because obviously having two coupes and two convertibles would be madness. 
four-seat convertibles are an abomination, so that's a blessing. But the decision to build the GT in-house at Pomigliano Darko, while at the same time outsourcing the manufacturer of the Giugiaro design Brera and the in-house, with a little help from Pininfarina Spider, to their great rivals, was, if not the final nail in the coffin, certainly one of the last two. Ironically, the early cancellation of the Brera and the Spider also signaled the end of manufacturing at Pininfarina and the end of both facilities at Grilliasco. Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Stop, Stop the, the podcast. podcast. Why are we stopping the podcast? Uh, this is the part where we pretend somebody's sponsoring the show and take the opportunity to talk about one of the club's partners. Yeah, see, there's plenty of those to choose from. So who should we talk about? What about Revive Auto Apothecary? That's easy for you to say. What's an apothecary when it's at home? Well, it's a, it's a chemist or a drugstore for our US listeners. I'm sure they'll both be grateful for the explanation. Let me guess, this is actually to do with washing cars, isn't it? Yeah, it's detailing, that is. So do they make stuff to make the car soapy or stuff to make it shiny? It's, it's kind of both and, and a lot more. Why the fancy name? Yeah, it's because they're fancy products. They're kind of unique. They're in fancy bottles, a bit like a kind of 18th century apothecary. Hence the name. Well, anything's got to be better than all those nasty plastic bottles I currently have in my garage. <laughs> Indeed. It's not just the bottles that look classy, though. Everything's done in the best possible taste. And they're tins of wax to their applicator pucks. They're what now? Yeah, they're a- applicator pucks. It's like a wooden handle, and, and it's got a bit of Velcro that you can attach your, your foam pad to so you can get the, that wax out of the out of the tin. And, and it, it keeps your, your hands clean. All beautifully made and packaged anyway. Sure, but is it any good? It's really good. The, the, the luxury wax it makes, brilliant. It smells fabulous. It's all smooth and buttery. Now, what you do in your own time is your own business. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But what I do most is washing polished cars. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got that. Anyway, this stuff's so good, it must be ruinously expensive. Well, it's not, actually. It's, it isn't. It's, it's well-priced to start with. Uh, they're really good products, great prices, and not only that, A-Rock members get a whopping 25% off. 25% off? Why didn't you lead with that? Discount code on the members forum, I assume? Yeah, probably I should have, but yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, 25% is terrific. Excellent. I'm off to order some of that smooth buttery wax. Yeah, it's luxury, luxury wax. Ah, on with the podcast. On with the podcast. On On with the the show. show. (laughs) Okay, let's move to our second fact. And that fact is from... Okay, so my fact is that in 2019 and 2020, that season's Alfa Romeo F1 car made its debut on Valentine's Day. And to tie in with Alfa's Cuore Sportivo, Sporting Heart slogan, the Centro Stile designers created a special Valentine's Day livery. In 2019, it was sort of a camouflage mosaic made of hearts and cloverleaf logos. And in 2020, it was a snakeskin effect with the scales were hearts. In 2021, there was nothing to camouflage as the cars were carried over from 2020. And unfortunately, in 2022, sadly, it was a dull, grey-scale camouflage pattern, utterly heartless. And this year, they just used their race livery. Although they did have a charity winter livery in January designed by a German graffiti artist called Boogie, all in capital letters. It looks a bit like hearts from a distance, but as you get closer, it looks like a full set of internal organs. Nice. When you get really close, though, it's actually the letters from Alfa Romeo F1 Team Steak and Boogie in a font that looks like red blood cells. Certainly unique. 
You can get scale models of the two heart-themed deliveries. That would make a great present for Valentine's Day. Yeah, that would be a really useful piece of consumer advice about three weeks ago, Nick. <laughs> There's always next year. If you're looking for a really classy gift, though, you could try and track down a pair of Mito jeans. Mito jeans? I assume they only have front pockets. <laughs> Possibly. They were the result of a project to create 100 pairs of women's jeans, taking some design ideas from the Mito, the black leather waistband and red stitching. It all sounds to me like a scheme born just to squeeze in the tagline, Alpha Mito DNA is in your genes. Oh dear. I bet David's got a pair. Seriously, though, I wonder if he knows that the URL they created to sell them, mitogenes.co.uk, is no longer live and available to purchase. The game with the fashion theme. Fashion theme? I thought we were doing Valentine's Day. Have you not done the show before? <laughs> Anyway, sticking with the fashion theme, from 2011 to 2013, Alfa Romeo sponsored the Young Designer of the Year Award in conjunction with St. Andrew's Charity Fashion Show, which was apparently where, in 2002, a young William Windsor finally properly noticed that his friend Kate Middleton was a girl. The see-through lace dress, which later sold for £78,000, may have been a factor. So the designers had to create an Alfa Romeo-themed collection, none of which, sadly, ever made it to the club shop. You would have bought lots if it had. I would have. I couldn't find any trace of the 2011 or 2013 winners after the competition. But 2012 winner Janine Clark apparently now designed swim and sleepwear for Abercrombie and Fitch. I wouldn't have thought sleeping while swimming was a good idea, but I'm not really down with the youth. That's right. I did track down 2013 joint winner Luke Archer, who has his own label making high-end women's fashion. And his partner in crime, George Jenkins, seems to be reduced to holding up a cardboard sign with Will Draw Stuff for Money written on it. Really? Well, not far off. His website tells you he can use AutoCAD, SketchUp and Adobe Creative Suite and that he uses them to design in-store displays, product merchandising, pop-up event styling, headpieces and attire construction, whatever that is. But when he won the competition in 2013, he was described as a milliner. Maybe there's just not enough demand for headpieces. Maybe Luke's success is down to the fact that he can spell Alfa Romeo properly, though. Uh, George has Alpha with a PH on his website. Uh, to be fair, he's not alone. The first print of Dan Brown's book, Angels and Demons, had the Swiss guard driving around in Alfa Romeo's with a PH. Doesn't surprise me. This is a family show, but if you Google Stephen Fry Dan Brown gravy, you can see what the great man thinks of the Da Vinci Code. And I think he's being kind. According to the very, very distracting Internet Movie Cars database, there are three alphas in the movie of Angels and Demons, but none of them are driven by the Swiss Guard. That sounds like a great website. It is if you've got a data lose and don't have a looming deadline for a podcast script. <laughs> Angels and Demons features a Carabinieri 159, a 156 in the background of a scene, and a 1983 spider which gets caught up in an explosion. It's a Series 3, and it takes the full force of the explosion in the rear end. So it's going to take a lot of scraping to get the melted rubber spoiler off the boot. There's another one that suffers an almost identical fate in Jason Bourne. But that does rather neatly bring me to my fact this week, which is that Alfa Romeo 159s were incredibly popular in crime and spy stories on the big screen and the small screen. Everybody remembers the black 159s in the opening sequence of Quantum of Solace, quite capable of keeping up with an Aston Martin. I have a model of one of those. <laughs> yeah, of course, Khan at Rowan Atkinson also made sure they're included in in that James Bond spoof, Johnny English Reborn, great film. Indeed, and they also feature prominently in Silent Witness. Silver one was driven by one of the main characters, and there was a red one in Full Met Police Livery, which appeared as part of the Met Police Diplomatic Protection Group. In ITV's Grace, where the eponymous detective drove one until it was written off, Inspector Montalbano, obviously. Welcome to the Punch, a 2013 crime action thriller slash box office disaster with James McAvoy and Mark Strong. Blue Murder with Caroline Quentin. 
Crossing Lines with Donald Sutherland, The Bill, Midsummer Murders, Gangs of London, Sherlock, Spooks, Zen with Rufus Sewell, Hunted, which was a sort of spy slash special forces action romp from the man who created the X-Files. Oh, scraping the bottom of the barrel a bit now. <laughs> Nearly at the bottom. And this could have gone on for hours if I'd included all the Italian and Dutch appearances. But back to the list, there was The Tracker with Dolph Lundgren, Good Cop with Stephen Graham from Snatch and Stephen Walters from Layer Cake, Vexed with Lucy Punch, Zoolander 2 with Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, which I think probably is the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> and Tenet. I don't think Tenet's actually a crime thriller, but I've no idea what it was about, so I just chucked that one in. There's a sport wagon in The Interceptor, which was a short-lived series about customs officers running around behaving like MI5 officers, which also featured a Brera driven by the main character. And definitely not a crime thriller, but there was also a Red 159 in the in-betweeners. And a Red 939 Spider in Agatha Raisin. And a Brera, which kept popping up randomly in car parks in the nuclear submarine thriller Vigil. And there's another Brera in A Touch of Frost. And another, bizarrely, in Captain America Civil War. The link between alphas and crime shows goes back a lot further than that. There was a 2000 Spider Veloce in the first series of The Sweeney in the 70s with the app registration JPP999K. Well, look that. I looked that one up on the DVLA site, and it doesn't seem to be a real registration number, so it may have been an in-joke. There was another spider in the Sweeney, though, SGH11, which also appeared in the series called The Brothers. That registration is now on a Porsche KN. There was an Alpha suit and an Alfetta lurking in the background of a couple of episodes of the Sweeney, too, and a Julia 1300 Ti tucked away in a worryingly damp alleyway. I hope they dried it off and put it in a car coon as soon as they yelled cut. Yeah, and there's, a, there's another Italian link with John Thor, of course, uh, which is that Inspector Morse in the book drove Valencia, that Thor insisted that he'd have driven a British car, uh, what would the author know, obviously. So he insisted on the Jag anyway, and the Jag broke down all the time and made his life a misery. Serves him right. Okay, it's time for our fourth and final fact, and that's Nick's fact. My fact this week is that while the hidden rear door handles on the prototype Tonali didn't make it to the production version, Everyone else has copied them. The idea of the hidden door handles on the 156 was to make the saloon look more like a coupe. Yeah, but really, I, I assumed it was to humiliate your passengers, allowing you to stand there silently chuckling while they tried to work out how to get in. <laughs> that was just a bonus, I think. Alpha didn't invent them. The first car I could find with them on is the Nissan Pathfinder, but that's really a truck, and they do look like truck door handles. They were on the 156 and the 147, and they disappeared from the 939 series cars, of course, before reappearing on the Giulietta. But well, then they were everywhere. Although the rear of the 159 door does look as though it was meant to have them. I think the first place I saw them after the Alphas was the Seat Leon. That's right. And Walter De Silva, who designed the 156 and the 147, was hired by VW to turn the Seat into a sort of Spanish Alfa Romeo. So he designed the Leon, the sort of Spanish 147, complete with the go-faster door handles. Yeah, it's, it's almost easier to find a hatchback or a small SUV without rear door handles than with these days. I mean, the Suzuki Swift, the CHR Toyota, the Nissan Juke, Nissan Micra, Renault Clio. Those two are the same car, to be fair. There's also <laughs> the Honda HRV, the previous generation of Civic, Hyundai Veloster. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, and there were other novelties uh, introduced with the 156, of course. How about an estate version with less boot space in the saloon? People say that, and it was sort of technically true. But even though the sport wagon was no Volvo 940, the boot space was far more flexible in the saloon, especially with the seats down. It was only smaller if you stopped measuring at the rather clever but fragile retractable luggage cover. I had a saloon and a sport wagon, and the estate was far more practical. Putting stuff in the boot of the saloon was like posting through a letterbox, and the ski hatch was about as much use as well as a ski hatch. 
Yeah, yeah, probably right. I mean, there were lots of weird faults on the 156, so much as I loved them. The one I had in particular was the weird fault, and it probably appeared on a few because I saw it on the web, is where some of the rear tail lights would stay on permanently, no matter what the position was of your, of your key in the ignition. So it'd stay on, flatten your battery, apparently all down to a resistor failure that was conveniently fitted on the back of the rev counter. So all very Italian. Oh, and not forgetting the airbag warning light. I mean, don't even consider moving the passenger seat with the ignition on. Ping, on comes the light. And you've got all of that with a manual. Add a Celespeed gearbox into the mix and the fun really started. You add the complexity of a roboticized F1-inspired automated paddle shift gearbox and make the car slower. Yeah. They caught the automatic market, and boy, was it trendy in 1999 to have an F1-inspired gearbox. When each change took as long as it took for Nigel Mansell to lap Monza in the first semi-automatic F1 Ferrari, it took the edge <laughs> off the driving experience a little bit. You also had to help it by lifting off the throttle, assuming it was working at all. And, and amazingly, 20-odd years on, 71 still remain in the UK, and that includes six GTA V6 variants, and that's a, that's a delight I'm yet to sample. They put it in 1472, of course, so it seemed a little bit swifter changing in those. That number of seller speeds is even more incredible when you look at how many 156s are still around. There were 42,000 on the road in 2005 at the peak, and that's down to 1,331 road registers and 3,056 on Sorn. That beautiful bodywork was nicely rust-protected. Sadly, the floor's not so lucky. Half of them were. I mean, half of the floors, not half of the cars. So it's a shame. They were great cars. They certainly were. Absolutely. But you try telling young people today that, and they won't believe you. <laughs> right. That's all we've got time for this week. If you want to get in touch with any of us about the things we've talked about in this episode, or facts for the next episode, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm at Alpha Driver UK. And I'm at Arock UK Thames V, all one word. And I'm Arock East Mids. And you can reach me by email at manager at arock-uk.com. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Sunday the 12th of March when Kirsty will be sitting in for me to host our annual International Women's Day episode with a very special guest. Episode 76 will be available to download from 1.30pm from Google Podcasts, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, the club's website, and everywhere else good podcasts are found. Until then, stay safe. safe.